Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. I hope y'all had a good week and probably depended on, you know, maybe how that meal went on Thursday and if everybody understood the assignment. So let me just, you know, make some noise if you were at a place where folks got it right, you know. Yeah, I see not everybody's clapping and participating, so I feel your pain. But um, I will say at our home that everyone got it right. Uh, Yes, yes, especially that mac and cheese, because, you know, hey, hey, that's important, right? But it it really is funny how I think, especially for those that do the Friendsgiving vibe and, you know, just any kind of a potluck situation, you realize every, like, individual can either make or break that whole experience, right? Like, if somebody messes something up or they bring something out that's not good, it, it kind of can ruin the entire scenario because we all can influence each other. And that meal is a reminder of the fact that that influence can either be for good or, you know, for, um, I'm good. I actually, I'm not that hungry. <laughs> and we're going to talk today about what will I do with my influence What will I do with my influence? Um, As we get into this portion of Esther, just to kind of rewind the tape a little bit for those who may uh, haven't been here or just, you know, don't quite remember. Last week, uh, our lead pastor, James, just did an incredible job breaking down Esther chapter four. That was the pivotal chapter in which Mordecai, who's a Jew, uh, and the cousin of Esther, who's also a Jew, but has, um, without letting people know about her ethnicity and her faith, ended up becoming the queen of the land. And Mordecai alerts Esther to the, to the reality that there's a plot by Haman, who hates the Jews, that he's actually not just created a plot, but actually put it into policy, into law, to wipe out all the Jews, to annihilate them. And so Mordecai tells Esther, hey, I know I initially, you know, kind of let you know to kind of, you know, just strategically keep your identity under wraps, but now you're going to have to end this. You're going to have to intervene to make sure that our, us and our people don't get wiped out. And at the end of that chapter, we see Esther proclaim a fast. She says, okay, get everybody to pray and fast and intercede for me for three days. And this drama unfolds because the key component that is of concern to her is that she is going to have to appear before the king to go before the king without being announced. And that was a uh, crime in their culture, punishable by death. Now, you might go like, why? That just seems like such a random thing to kind of impose. But if you look a little bit into the history, you can understand why. 
because people knew that that was a very influential position. And in fact, the, the Persian Empire came into power because someone got close to the Babylonian king and killed him. You can see that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30. It's there. But not only that, we see in chapter 2 of Esther, this very book, that Mordecai unveils a plot from two men who were in the king's palace to kill the king. So there was always this sense of not just palace intrigue, but danger. And one of the clear stop gaps that they had was to say, hey, nobody comes to the king unless they've been invited. And so now Esther is going to uh, break that norm. But in this, we see this drama unfold where, unfold where they all are influencing somebody else. But what will Esther do and what will happen? Up until this point in the story, Esther, you know, has just been kind of playing a passive role, taking the path of least resistance. And, you know, that's kind of a role that many of us can relate to. As Pastor James talked about, that issue of passing where we uh, can pass and pretend to not necessarily be distinct because of our faith or distinct because of our ethnicity if we're in a dominant culture and we're in the minority, but we could just try to blend in and assimilate. But that only lasts but for so long. And now we've come to that point for Esther, the point of no return where she now chooses to use her influence in a different way. So here we have in verse 1 of chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. <laughs> it's interesting to see the type of detail that the author is painting the picture so we can just picture ourselves right there. The king is sitting on his throne. And notice that it says <laughs> the facing the entrance. So it's saying that basically... <laughs> As soon as Esther stands up and stands in, it's like it's there, it's on, it's ready to happen. Put yourself in her shoes for a second. Imagine what that must feel like. I mean, the fast that she's proclaimed is now over, and she's about to come in unannounced. Will the king treat her like he did Queen Vashti and banish her? Or like those who were trying to kill him in chapter 2? Did Haman already find out who she was, and would he call her a spy? All of these things are pressing in on her as she makes this decision, and this is what we see in verse 2. And the king, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. That was their cultural symbol to say, I don't mean harm and I am accepting your invitation. Verse three, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half the kingdom. 
Now, someone said, hmm, that's a lot. Maybe that's where we get half from. This was more of uh, hyperbole. He wasn't meaning this literally, but it does re- represent the type of generosity that she is experiencing from this person that definitely is not the type of death sentence that she was afraid of. What is it that I can give you? And notice he uses the title, Queen Esther. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, she knows a little bit about the king, so he jumps right in on this opportunity to go to a banquet. He was already about to party. We see that in chapter one. And then they are at the banquet. And just to fast forward a couple of verses, and once again, he asks at the, you know, so they're eating now. And he knows that, okay, you, you probably brought me here because you want something. Like, what is it? In verse 7 and 8, we see that then Esther answers, my wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Kind of an interesting thing. <laughs> she kind of doubles down, right? Like, um, yeah, come into the party again. And we'll explain a little bit why, but the key point here is that Esther uses her influence to intercede. She's going to, at this banquet, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that more the next uh, sermon, we're going to focus on that in chapter 6, what happens after she reveals. But in this moment, she, she shoots her shot. She, she takes the risk, and, and she steps into the king's presence, and, the, and, and God grants her favor, not only to spare her life, but to actually give and her, for her more generosity than she could have ever imagined. They go to the banquet, and now we see a side of Esther that we haven't seen before, and I would say wasn't even there. And there are three ways in particular that I want to highlight that she interceded. One, she interceded independently. All the way up to this point, we see that Mordecai was the one that was giving her instruction about what to do, or, or it was the, the king's eunuchs that were saying, hey, do this or do that, or, or bring, come before the king's presence with this or that. Now she's no longer hiding. She's shining. And you know, the only way to flourish in who you are and who you're called to be is to declare it and to come out of the shadows and stand firm for God. Until you do that, you won't ever be who you were called to be. You know, I was uh, having a conversation with a member here at Bridge just this week. And she was sharing with me how a year ago, two years ago, she, she was the type of person that would tend to hide her Christian identity with her friends and coworkers for fear of how they might react. And so, you know, she might be at the job and they say, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? And she would just intentionally avoid the fact that she would go to church. Or they're getting into some things and, you know, hey, do you, you know, you mind if we do whatever? And she's like, no, I don't mind. And what she found was that They were influencing her. She wasn't influencing them. And compromise began to take place. But she started coming to bridge. She started getting stronger in her faith. And and then she started to, to actually declare 
yo, this is who I am. This is my identity. Like, I, I, I rock with Jesus. And, and a funny thing started to happen. She started to find that some of the folks that she was even afraid to maybe share who her identity was was like, oh, you too? Let's, let's fellowship together. And, so, you know, that's kind of the thing that happens when we get bold, right? Like, all of a sudden, people get to, to, to instead of being the thermometer that just reflects the temperature around us, we become the thermostat that adjusts the temperature around us. Influence. Are we going to step aside or are we going to hide? Esther steps out. A lot of people can talk big, but she actually showed up for her people. The second thing, not only was she independent, but she interceded intelligently. Oh, yeah, there's a strategy behind what she's doing. First of all, she notices that she invites the king to a banquet because she knows he likes to eat and drink. And she's like, hey, this is what we're going to roll with. This is what we're going to do. Do you realize that faith doesn't contradict planning? Yes. I'm going to say that again. Faith does not contradict planning and strategy. You see, the king, it says, that hadn't asked for her, or what she says in chapter 4, hadn't requested her presence in 30 days. So now, by not just saying, hey, the first time I see you, I'm asking for something, but I'm actually going to connect with you a couple times, and I'm going to give you a sense of a rapport with me to reconnect so that by the second day, now we're in a different place than we were in the first day. Strategy. Sometimes it's disappointing when us as believers, we want to do things for Jesus. We want to share our faith. We want to be bold and, and, and be, but, but instead of, you know, being bold and being loud ain't the same thing. Um, we've gotten it so wrong as a church over the years, right? Like you see the person on the subway that's just like interrupting everybody and everything. And, you know, you don't see it as much now during the pandemic, but they're starting to just preach out loud at not necessarily who. And it's like, who is this really influencing? We try to coerce people into the kingdom. But as my friend uh, Lisa Fields, she, she, I saw this post today. I was like, man, this is so accurate. She says, you can't shame people into salvation. It just don't work that way, right? And, and I've seen how she, she's a, uh, the CEO of Jude 3 Project. Um, it's a, a, a ministry that really tries to engage with people about their doubts and their skepticism. And she does this brilliantly. Like she, she recently started doing this series called Why I Don't Go. And what she started to do was actually gather. She would just put out, a, you know, just kind of on social media. Hey, if you've left the church and you'd like to talk about your experiences, you know, please let me know, sign up and we'll see if you can be a part of this panel. And so she'll set up the camera, set up the panel and have people talk about their experiences. And as a result, of and first, it's what she does for the first hour is just listen. And then the second hour, she says, okay, now, do you have any questions for me as somebody who still goes to church? And she allowed me to participate in this a couple months ago. And you know what's, what happened? <laughs> One of the folks ended up starting, came to church with us here in, at Bridge afterwards. Because once you got that connection of like, oh, you're not trying to just beat me over the head. You're actually trying to be winsome and intelligent in the way that you respond. Then all of a sudden, that creates a different type of context for those who are struggling and having questions. That's what it means to intercede intelligently. But then also, Esther interceded through invitation. 
She interceded through invitation. She invited them to, to dinner. And when you think about it, the thing that's particularly fascinating is she invited Haman. Haman was the source of this entire problem. Haman was the one who hated her people and was trying to wipe them all out. She invites Haman to the dinner. That requires faith. And for some people, you lack the patience to be strategic like that and, and actually sit down. And, and, but this, don't you realize that this is what David is saying in Psalms 23 when he says, God will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies? He said, oh, yeah. I'm going to invite because this is going to strategically get, present what I need to happen. And, and, and this transformation is something that we see is so significant. I love the way that Karen Job, uh, she wrote the NIV commentary on Esther. This is how she puts it. The transformation of Esther's character from a person of weak character to one with heroic moral stature and political skill proceeds from that defining moment when she decides to identify herself with God's covenant. Once she decides to do that, when she says, okay, God, now I'm on your agenda. Now I'm thinking your thoughts. Now I'm going to, to, to flow into your plan for me and not my own. Everything changes. We all have a defining moment. For many of us, that defining moment is in your rearview mirror. You can remember the point in the moment in time when you decided, I'm going to let Jesus influence me more than anybody else. For some you're considering that defining moment right now. And to that, we say we welcome you. I remember my defining moment. And interestingly enough, it came as a result of somebody else knowing her assignment. See, I was in high school, and I was trying to be a player. Had two girlfriends at the same time. Got caught by one, because you can't be a player if you don't have game. But I was really broken and distraught about it because I had brought my, built myself up to be this person that I wasn't. And so then I confessed to the other girl. And after getting chewed out by the one, I was just waiting for another verbal beatdown. And she said, I forgive you. And I was like, what? <laughs> Why? She said, well, Jesus has forgiven me for everything that I've done. So I don't think I should hold this against you. I was blown away by that response. Uh, could you help me understand what that means and how you got there? I started going to church, started hearing the gospel. That was a defining moment for me and for her. And you see, the influence was instead of walking away with condemnation, I was able to walk away with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have influence. But she's not the only person in this chapter who uses her influence. The author, for the first time really in this book, gives us a deeper glimpse into the other dinner guests, Haman. Verse 9, we read, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, because he just got the invitation. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh 
And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his, children, of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. That's kind of crazy. Go joyfully. Go hang somebody and then like just, you know, do your thing. The idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. There's a few things to kind of break down that we see in this glimpse of who Haman is. First, we see a very happy Haman. He comes out, you know, it's like, man, he, he came out from the party joyful and glad of heart. Happy, he's feeling real special. You know, he got his promotions. He got just him and the king got invited to this shindig with the queen and it was just them and he's feeling himself. But the mere sight of Mordecai causes this hatred to stir up in him. And don't you realize hate consumes happiness? Hate will, I mean, think about it. Like he just, he's having, he's winning. His, his edict has gotten passed through. He's, he's, he's advanced up the ranks as far as he can. He's wealthy. He has all of this, but it doesn't mean anything to him because his hate is consuming his hate, happiness. Be careful not to allow hate to consume your happiness. You know, if anybody, I think about historical figures like Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was in prison for 23 years simply for trying to create a democratic society for his country. Was beaten, was, was a political prisoner, was a source of a global international protest movement. And in 1991, when he was released, people was like, oh, Nelson, is, it's about to go down. As the apartheid system came crashing down and there was an election, and after the result of the election, Nelson Mandela won, the entire world was waiting like, yo, what is the clapback about to look like? And this is what Mandela said. Resentment is like taking poison and hoping it'll kill someone else. You see, Haman was consumed by his hatred. He could not get past that. So even anything else he was experiencing in his life didn't matter. This is the danger of unforgiveness. This is the danger of bitterness and resentment. You see, life is about what you do about what happens to you. Life is about what you do about what happens to you. Bad things happen to all of us. In this world, it's a broken, sinful, fallen place. But the question is, what happens to me? And will I allow that resentment and bitterness to then taint 
you know, we, we li- let people live rent-free in our head. That person who hurt us, they long gone. Is, 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 they're moving on. And we're holding on to it in a way in which we need, sometimes we need help with that, whether it be counseling, whether it be therapy, whether it be counsel, but you need to let it go so it doesn't consume you. But the other thing we see about Haman's hate is it causes injustice. Haman's hatred for Mordecai rages so much that one, he's decided, well, let's actually participate in ethnic cleansing and genocide and wiping out Jews from India all the way to Ethiopia. But in addition to that, he now is looking to have Mordecai executed even earlier just because he don't like him and he's his agent. He didn't do nothing wrong. And so we see a contrast. You see the difference. Esther uses her influence to intercede. Haman uses his influence to indulge and injure. And even if your hate doesn't come and look like the violence that Haman's does immediately, be careful about just indulgence. Some of us can know about that on Thanksgiving, right? Like when what happens when I just indulge too much and then I just feel like, ugh, I did too much. Or it might not be for you, it might not be the food on Thursday, but it might be the consumerism of Friday. Spending, spending, spending to try to make myself fill a void that otherwise isn't there. But this hatred we've seen, and specifically in the ethnic context, over this past year, sometimes it feels like time just functions differently during the pandemic, right? Like, am I, It was just this past March that we saw the Atlanta massacre when Robert Long went on this shooting killing spree in Atlanta, Georgia, targeting Asian Americans. Y- y'all remember that in Atlanta? Like, eight people dead. I mean... That just happened in this year. Feels like that was like two years ago in some ways. But specifically, this was probably the most high-profile example of a lot of anti-Asian hate that was just sweeping the entire globe because of the pandemic. People often want to find people to blame and to cast aspersions on when things happen that are beyond their control. Like in Esther's time, we live in a world that's divided by hate. She had to appeal to a king who often used his influence to indulge other people, to indulge himself. That's who she had to appeal to. The king that was the most powerful person in the land, and he had already co-signed on human trafficking, which is how she became queen, and genocide, which is what she's concerned about right now. Not a great example of an earthly king. But how many of you know that we have a king of kings? He has a different type of influence and he uses his reign in a different way. And so I I want to just take a second to just ask the question, how does the king of kings use his influence? And how does that contrast to what we've seen so far in this dark picture in Esther? And, and, And of course, we could spend a whole lot of time examining all the nuances of that, but, but I just want to go to Philippians 2, 6, and 9. Just, just kind of to brag on the king of kings for a second. Can I do that? Just, just see the contrast in light of what we've just been saying with Haman. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's my king. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is amazing. Jesus, Jesus uses his influence his holiness, his perfection to identify and intercede with those who needed it. And and, and in this way, Xerxes gives us just a a dim, dim, glim image of some of the attributes of Jesus. Let 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 me help you see how. You see, honestly, Esther trespassed against the king's command. And as a result of that, it was punishable by death. But the king... When he extended the scepter to Esther, he was extending grace that she did not deserve. And that gave her life. But it's not only then, right? Because what day was it when Esther came before him? The third day. That's not just a meaningless detail. And and according to Jewish commentators, they, they looked at that day of the third as a day where the people suffering would come to an end. You see, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And so this third day was just this picture for them to expect a deliverance that would come. How many of y'all know that the third day is when Jesus rose, conquered death? But not only that, Jesus rose to imperishable life, guaranteeing safety to enter God's presence to all who would reach out to him in faith and touch his cross-shaped scepter. That's what he offers to us. That's what we have the opportunity to to have this picture of what it means to use influence for the sake of somebody else. But that hurt. That caused him to lose some things, to give up some things, to take on that cross for you and for me. That caused something. So the concerns that Esther had about her own safety and, and her own sense of comfort that she had before, all of that had to be put aside if she was going to follow the king of kings. Well, then that asks the question. How should we use our influence? That's how we started. How will we use our influence? The cool thing about Philippians 2, 6 is that if you just jump up a couple verses, you get to see the answer to the question already. Verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ did not just redeem us. He also influenced us to show us a path of how we ought to do what we ought to do with our influence. He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, we saw the mind that was in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself and became a servant. He he used his influence for the sake of others. This is what Paul is saying that we should do. This is what Esther gives us a picture of. And here's the beautiful part about it. Esther's decision about what to do with her influence, it, 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 reach far beyond her own identity, enabling her to be the agent through whom God would deliver a whole nation of people. Stay tuned in the next couple of weeks. You'll see how, that, how exactly that unfolds. But Esther's defining moment was truly a life and death decision that went far beyond her own life and touched the lives of others. That's what you do with influence. 
Now, in your case, and again, you see this lofty example that, you know, going to, you know, the king, you go, well, what does that got to do with me? And the reality is, even if your context is not that spectacular and grand, it is still that significant. It may for you be tomorrow morning identifying as a Christian. It may be forgiving someone like that girl in high school forgave me. It may even be standing for injustice of those that are, can't speak for themselves. But whatever it is, it should be an aspect where I actually use this influence to identify with God and his people. So there's the two aspects here. One, we should use our influence to identify with God. And in that context, what we're saying is not shrinking back. Yeah, I know that we might take some hits for that. There might be some misunderstandings and misconceptions. Sometimes people get triggered because of their own church hurt when you say things. But you know what? Don't hide. Be bold. And remember, be wise. You know, you may be the only Bible that someone reads. What would the page, what would the verse say? What would your influence be? And for those that are like, yo, I've already messed up so many times. I don't, I hear you, but I'm just such a bad influence that I can't get out of that. And this is the other beautiful thing about this passage is because for the believer, God is still extending his scepter of grace. That's not just a one-time deal. That's not just get out of hell, you know, card, right? That's, that's like continual. I continually need to experience that grace. And God's redemption through Jesus is continual as well. Grace for today. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And he still says to us, just like even better than what Xerxes said to Esther when he said, oh, up until all, anything you want, up to half the kingdom. God doesn't even narrow it to half the kingdom. He says, ask anything you want in my name and I'll give it to you. How about that? And then lastly, we should use our influence to intercede for others. You know, I've gotten a chance to engage and connect with some incredible friends who are doing major work. You know, I talked about the issues of anti-Asian hate earlier. And when I started to hear more about the story of the response, I saw that there were believers that were at the front lines of that response. A professor named Russell Young started Stop AAPI Hate, which up until this point, one of the problems with any trying to organize any governmental response was the fact that there was no statistics. So, you know, you'd hear an anecdotal story here or there about something that happened, an attack on the subway, but there was no actual data that people could prove that this was a, as, as big of a problem as, as, as the community was making it seem. So they literally created a database because of his faith in Christ. He said, this is something that I feel like this activism I must do. Another friend of mine, Pastor Ray Chang, started the Asian American Christian Collective, and, and they released a statement that had over 10,000 signatures and created strategies around coalition buildings with believers and non-believers. And during a time in which Congress and Senate can't seem to pass anything, they were able to get a COVID-19 anti-Asian hate bill passed 94 to 1 through the Senate. This is because they understood their influence. Esther's advocacy benefits not only her, and not only even her people, but all people as a result. 
You see, as a result of this defining moment and her decision that she made, she, her using her influence for God's purposes, she was transformed to the full dignity, the courage, and power of what it meant to be queen in God's eyes. And that's what happens to us when we choose to use our influence to identify with God and intercede for others. Here's, hear me, hear me. What I'm saying is, do you want to be fully you? You're trying to find out what your purpose is and sense of meaning? Submit your mission to God's mission. Submit your ambition to God's mission. And he will take the part that you're looking at, the thing that you think is so big, and he will amplify it exponentially. To say, actually, that's just a small thing compared to what I want to do with you. Now, there's risk involved. We sometimes forget. Esther didn't know how that story was going to end when she walked into that palace. And neither do we. And there can be fear involved with that. That's real. But what we can believe and know is that when we trust God and lean into what he says we are, that that destiny and that direction is greater than any other path we could take. The safest place in the world is in the will of God. What will you do with your influence? Will you intercede like Esther or indulge and injure like Haman? John Maxwell said, leadership is influence, nothing more nothing less. Titles don't have much value when it comes to leading. True leadership cannot be awarded, appointed, or assigned. It comes only from influence, and that cannot be mandated. It must be earned. Today, I'm submitting to you that we all have an influence. We all have a sphere of influence. We all have those around us who are impacted by who we are, what we say, what we do, what we post. And I pray that Esther would inspire you like she's inspired me to see, like, like, Lord, just help me to make the most of my moment. Help me take that defining moment and be all that you have called me to be. And give me the grace that when I blow it, to recognize that that's not the end of the story too, that you still extend the scepter of grace to me each and every morning, each and every day. That's our path. That's our call. And that's our opportunity. Would you stand with me and pray? God in heaven, we thank you that even though we are not deserving of being partners with you in your kingdom work, you have extended that opportunity to us. Lord, whatever that might be, that may be causing us to have fear. We've just asked that you would help us to release it to you. Help us to see the ways in particular you would have us use our influence to identify with you in your kingdom agenda and to intercede for others. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for this picture of the fact that all we have to do is look to you because you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't first done yourself. Help us have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. 
who humbled himself and became a servant to others. And you gave him the influence that's above every other influential person that has ever lived on this earth. And the one in which we say he is Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.